If you have a Bible, turn to Job chapter 8. We are working our way through the book of Job. This is our eighth week and just been so encouraged by uh, what the Lord has revealed through His Word. My oldest son is finishing up seminary in May. He'll have completed really what is a four-year degree in three years. It's like 110 hours. It's an incredible degree. We're super proud of him, grateful for what the Lord is doing. And he's at that stage now where he's sending out resumes to churches who are looking for an assistant pastor. And so naturally, this has uh, consumed much of our discussion over the last uh, month or two. He'll send me a link to a church and say, Dad, you got to see this church. you got to see the, the liturgy and the mission and the vision and just the, the Christ-centeredness. It's really cool. And so I'll look at it and we'll talk through it. And um, I'm trying to help him see what, what to look for and what to uh, be careful to avoid. So we've talked through all of those things. And one of the things that I've shared with him is one of the most important things you can look for that you want to make sure you can find to the best of your ability is that you're going to come under high character and godly leadership. Uh, good leadership is, is absolutely essential. And so especially if it's your first ministry, ministry position, you want to make sure that you're, you're coming under someone who uh, really is rooted and anchored in the gospel and humble and so on. And, and these discussions have kind of brought me back a little bit in my memory to my first days in pastoral ministry. I served as an associate pastor for seven years, and I learned so much under my senior pastor. I mean, I learned a ton, and I'm really grateful for it. I mean, I learned some ministry philosophy, some rhythms that I would incorporate into my own life and my own ministry and my own home. Super thankful for all of those things. And, but I also learned, not surprisingly, I learned some things not to do. I learned some things that I decided I did not want to imitate. And this is really the way that it is. With anybody that we're around, any extended amount of time, we're going to learn some things that we want to do you know, like them. We're also going to learn some things that we don't want to do, you know, as we see uh, their example. This is actually the way that it is with everybody who's in the Bible except Jesus. Sometimes we look at the, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, and we, we, we tend to think these are perfect individuals who always made the right decisions, but it's not true. Uh, all the matriarchs, all the patriarchs, you know, they were all flawed people. They were all sinful people who rebelled against God's law at one point or another. And they're meant to point us to Jesus, the, the only true uh, perfect one. So we look in the scriptures and we see people that we want to emulate. Again, that we want to do what they do, even though that's not the point of the, the people in the Bible. Is They're not there for uh, our imitation necessarily, but we see that. And then sometimes we come across people who are like, okay, I don't want to do anything this person did. Well, as we look at Job's three friends, you know, Job is, uh, he's gone through just incredible, unspeakable tragedy, and he's suffering with this incredible grief and mourning, and his friends will come along and they will offer him counsel. Last week we looked at, uh, we looked at Eliphaz, Job, the first friend to come and, and, and quote, uh, comfort Job. And then this morning we're looking at uh, Bildad as he will uh, approach Job. Um, Job, again, grieving the loss of everything that meant anything to him. Uh, his children, his possessions, his very livelihood, all of that stuff is gone. Uh, he and his wife are mourning uh, this incredible loss, and he sits for silence and for a period of time, and then his friends come, and his friends start to speak. This morning we look at what Bildad has to say. So Job chapter 8 We'll cover verses or chapters 8 and 9. We're not going to look at every single verse, but 
Uh, let's begin by looking at uh, Job 8, verses 1 through 7. Here reads the word of the Lord. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, answered and said, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then He will rouse Himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. So Bildad, again, this is one of those situations, you know, with friends like these, right? So Bildad comes and he begins with three insults. This is a guy who's just, he's really, really suffering. And Bildad says, how long will you say these things? Well, what are these things? These things, in Bildad's estimation, are Job's self-justifying comments. Job's only given one of his eight responses that he will give throughout this book, and already Bildad is tired of hearing him talk. He says, just stop already. Stop making excuses. Stop trying to defend yourself. Admit your sin. Repent and be restored. And as if that wasn't enough, Bildad says, the words of your mouth are a great wind. In other words, you're full of hot air. Like, you know, a few few thousand years later, Shakespeare would say, "You're, you're full of sound and fury signifying nothing. In other words, what you're saying is just empty. It means nothing. And then Bildad really hits below the belt. He says, your children who died, they got what they deserved for sinning against God. Why are you so upset? God was simply meeting out justice. And I share with you a couple of weeks ago some of the heartbreaking and infuriating things that I've heard uh, over the years, so-called counsel that's been given to those who are hurting uh, people who have been just crushed by their moralistic, misguided friends. Those who have had heart disease, who have been told it's because of some sin in your life. Or those who have been diagnosed with cancer, who have been told, well, you know, you just got to be honest with God and stop hiding things from God. Those who have had children who were born with special needs, who have been told that it's because of some sin in your past. I mean, I've heard all of that stuff. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, not only is that infuriating and unloving, but it angers God. Well, this is exactly what Bildad says. He says, you know, you lost your kids. They deserved it. God's just uh, giving them what they deserve because of their transgression. But we saw then, and we we see throughout the Scripture, this is not how God works, even though we tend to assume that He does. Uh, When Jesus was walking along with His disciples and He encountered a man who was born blind, His disciples immediately resorted to this moralistic thinking, this retribution theology, And they said, who was it who sinned, this man or his parents? And, you know, their their assumption is that this man's getting what he deserved or he's paying for someone else's sin, maybe his parents' sin. But Jesus answered, no, it was neither this man nor his parents who sinned that caused this. His blindness was part of God's sovereign design, I'm paraphrasing, to showcase God's works of power. In other words, Uh, Through this man's blindness, God would show his power, not just to restore physical sight, but also to remove a man's spiritual blindness. But the disciples think, just like Job's friends, that this man had to be punished for something he was doing. That's why he's suffering. 
But that mindset, you know, it's not, it's not hard to see how that mindset leads to frustration, despair, anxiety. Uh, because regardless of how much we try to clean up our lives, we, we, we still suffer. And, you know, you have something really terrible happen to you. And if you believe this way, then there's the inclination to think, well, God, I'm doing my best here. Why are you doing this to me? And so it leads to frustration and even anger against God. Well, the, the beautiful truth that we've seen uh, and runs throughout this book and, and throughout the New Testament is that when Jesus died on the cross, he severed the link between suffering and deserving once for all. So what we deserve, God's wrath, his punishment, his condemnation, was actually poured out on Jesus on the cross in our place, though Jesus was sinless and undeserving of such punishment. The one who lived for us and died for us took on the wrath of God for us. What we don't deserve, forgiveness, God's approval, His acceptance, God pours out on us because of Jesus and by our faith in Him. So Bildad started out horribly, um, but then he says, verses 8 through 13, he says, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shallow or shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. Bildad tells Job to look beyond his own situation. He says, you gotta, you got to look back into the past and consider the wisdom of those who have gone before, those of bygone ages, verse 9. Listen to those who are older than you, to those who have lived longer, to those who have left behind instructions for those who would receive it. There's a, there's a general principle in Scripture that wisdom comes with age and young people ought to listen to those who are older. It's a general principle. Uh, yeah, people, some of the older folks say amen, and the uh, young people just furrow their brows and look angry. Um, when, when, when my son, one of my boys was a senior in high school and just wanted to be independent, you know, except anytime he needed money, then he was very dependent. But he wanted to be very independent. He doesn't need dad's instruction. He's a senior in high school, you know. What, what, what does he need dad anymore for? So we would butt heads and over things, and, and he would insist that he saw things more clearly than I did. He would say, Dad, that's the thing with your generation. You're just, you're just inside-the-box thinkers. You've got to be an outside-the-box thinker. That's the way life works. I said, well, I, I constantly think outside the box, but you're way, just, you're way beyond just outside the box. Like you're, you're out in a desert of bad ideas. I mean, this is not, you've left the box way behind. So this, this is not where you want to be. And uh, there was one time we couldn't get on the same page, and we, we, we wrestled and argued and pleaded and so on. And so I ended up drafting what they call in business an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding. And, uh, and what, what, I, what I, now my son and I laugh about it now. He wasn't laughing then, though. Uh, but what, the point that I was trying to make was, I'm older than you. Do you agree with that? Well, yeah, of course. You know, I, I've experienced more than you. Can you accept that? Yeah, Sure. Um, I've seen more than you. Yes, yes. I've made more mistakes than you. 
Yeah, definitely agree with that, he would. Um, so God has placed me in authority over you. Do you agree with that? You know, after a long pause, yeah, I, I, I have to agree with that. And so we drafted this memorandum of understanding, which I would only bring out maybe two or three times, you know, over the years. But it was him, and I made him sign it. And he had to sign it, which is, he had to recognize on paper that you know, God had placed me in authority over him, that I'd seen more and experienced more and, 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 and encountered more. And so it, naturally then, we could conclude that I had more wisdom in these areas. Well, what do those who have experienced more realize? According to Bildad, what they teach us, verse 10, is that the paths of those who forget God, which doesn't mean just for a moment, but you know, just ignore God and Him altogether, that path is a floundering, aimless, and hopeless existence. So here's our first point. There is an emptiness apart from God that cannot be remedied by any other pursuit, achievement, or, quote, wisdom. Bildad's theology proper is all messed up. He thinks that God is just up there, he's got a ledger, and he's just, you know, giving out punishment when somebody fails. So his theology proper is all messed up. His, his anthropology, his understanding of mankind is not so far off. In other words, he understands um, that we were made, that God is above, and we are below. God is the creator, we are the created. We were made to be in relationship with God. We were created to worship and commune with God. We know that on some level, life apart from God is empty. We feel it. But rather than submit to God and His ways, we, we dream up improvements of our own. So we listen to those people who tell us that what we really need is self-actualization to become the best version of ourselves. And man, I've heard that a thousand times. We need to tap into our inner beauty and our inner purity, we're told. And we convince ourselves that really deep down inside, we're good people. So when we do something terrible or we wrong someone or we're selfish in our ways, we think, well, that's not really who I am. My heart is right. But the deeper down we go, the dirtier things get. And if we're honest, we realize that our heart has already committed sins that our mouth and our hands have yet to get around to. We were born with a sin curse. We're born separated from God. And the solution to that problem is not bolstering our self-confidence or tapping into some inner strength. All that's foolishness. Even Bildad recognizes that those who are not right with God are like those who, verse 15, trust in a spider web. Now, this is an interesting analogy, and, and some of you scientists will know more about this than I do, but a spider web is really strong in terms of what they call the tensile strength. Uh, which means that it's the amount of stress that it can withstand before it starts to fracture. So in that sense, you can, you can look this up, it's as strong as steel in its tensile strength. But we also know about a, a spider web, you can just put your hand right through it. So it's not that strong in that sense. You can just, you can just rip right through it, which my wife would never do, because even if she sees the tiniest spider, she screams, as if she's just seen a zombie, it almost gives me a heart attack on a regular, uh, regular basis. But you can't, you can't, have you ever tried, of course you haven't, you ever tried leaning against a spider web? It doesn't work. You'll fall right through it. It breaks apart. And this is how it is, Bildad says, with the confidence of the godless person, the person who lives apart from God. If it, with any sort of pressure, he or she falls apart. 
And this is why, by the way, if I can be so bold, those who hold to godless ideologies and philosophies get so angry and combative when questioned, even respectfully. Their confidence is a shell. If you notice this, someone who rejects God's design for humanity, for sexuality, for reproduction, for gender, etc., they don't want to listen to reason. They don't even want to discuss. They just want to finger point because really deep down their confidence is, is a sham because they know that this can't possibly be the way that it is. They're leaning on a spider web that will easily collapse at any moment. Life apart from God is empty, meaningless, and filled with fear. Everything separated from God breaks down. Our relationships break down. Our marriages, our friendship, our pleasure, it all breaks down if it's apart from God. Like plants without water, Bildad says, without God we shrivel up and die. Now again, on this, Bildad is right. So what he has to say is right, just like Eliphaz, but why he's saying it is wrong. He believes that Job is living apart from God, denying God's presence and holiness, but Bildad's actually all washed up on this. Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 8. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. So Bildad, he just can't get away from that retribution theology. He can't get away from this idea that if something is going poorly in your life, it's necessarily because you've got a secret sin. He says he can't get away from the idea that if you're suffering, it's because you've got some hidden sin. Again, it's easy to do before we, before we condemn it. It's very easy to do. It's just where we tend to go in our minds when things aren't going well. It's where we tend to go in our minds when things aren't going well for someone else. God must be punishing that person. Well, Job will respond to Bildad just like he did to Eliphaz. So chapter 9, verses 1 through the first part of 2. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so. I want to pause there for a minute. What does Job know is so? Well, that he ought to seek God and plead with God for mercy, which is what Bildad begged him to do in chapter 8, verse 5. But on what basis, Job wonders aloud, would he claim to be an innocent man? That's his question. On what basis can I claim to be innocent? Now look at the last part of verse 2 through uh, verse 12. But how can a man be right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out, marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? So Eliphaz says to Job, you've got to go to, you've got to, go to God and insist that he'll hear you. Plead his case. And Job sees two insurmountable problems with that counsel. One, man's sinfulness. 
The fact that man is decidedly imperfect in thought, motive, word, action, and deed. And two, the greatness of God, who if Job uh, did plead his case, God would just turn the tables back on Job. Job says in verse 3, if one did wish to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. So Job says, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, I should go to God. I agree with you. But what can I possibly say? What could I possibly say to this God? Job imagines himself in a courtroom with God as the judge and Job himself as the plaintiff, representing himself. And Job says, could I out-argue the one who tells the mountains to jump into the sea and they do it? Could I strong-arm the one who stretched out the heavens? Could I build a successful case against the one who does great things beyond searching out? Could I catch off guard the one who named the sun and the stars? These are rhetorical questions, of course, meant to be answered with a resounding no. God is the supreme ruler of the universe. He is the sovereign one, glorious and splendor, infinite and wisdom, the creator and sustainer of everything. Can that God, Job said, be defeated? Can that God be manipulated? Can that God be out-argued? No. We simply recognize that He is God and we're not. He owes us no answers. He needs nothing from anyone. He is the all-powerful, good, and gracious King. So what do we do with this? Here's our second point. In the, in the absence of an answer to the why question, all we can do is appeal to the wisdom, power, and goodness of God. For most of the questions that plague us, God doesn't give us the micro reasons. He doesn't tell us why we were diagnosed with a disease. He doesn't tell us why we lost a loved one, prematurely, humanly speaking. He doesn't tell us why our boss turned against us. He doesn't tell us why we took a financial uh, downfall. He doesn't tell us why our friend turned against us. He doesn't tell us why he moved our best friend across country. We don't get the micro reasons, the, the specific individual. Now, he does give us the macro reason, the big picture reasons. What, what, what he's doing in his sovereignty by his providence is he is strengthening our faith. He is removing the idols of our heart. He is deepening our love for him. He is, he is keeping us close to himself. So those macro reasons... But if we're honest, we want more than that, don't we? We want more than just the macro reasons. We want the micro reasons. Why specifically, God, would you do such a thing to me? In the early 1980s, the book that dom dominated the New York Times bestseller list was by Rabbi Harold Kushner. It was called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And uh, it was a staple on the bestseller list for 53 straight weeks. Uh, in the early 80s, um, it trailed only, at one point, Jane Fonda's workout book, and then it would later be overtaken by Jane Fonda's workout book for pregnancy, which kind of surprised me when I saw that, because that seems like kind of a niche, you know. Um, but this book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, was one of the most influential books of the decade, really. In it, Kushner sought to answer the question, how could there be a loving God and so much evil in the world? And his answer was, God feels badly for us. He would love to help, but he can't. 
because he doesn't have the power to override human free will or autonomy. One day, Rabbi Kushner says, you'll be able, you'll be able to forgive God, it just takes time. Now, I'm horrified to tell you that this is a concept embraced by many Christians. In fact, even when Pastor Adam and I were combing over, when I first got here to Capshaw, the uh, Celebrate Recovery literature, which has some really good things in it. But there's even a place in there about learning to forgive God. We said, we can't have this. This is not right. The problem with that approach is, one, it's not very comforting. A helpless and powerless God who's handcuffed by human autonomy, who wants to help but can't. Why would we ever pray to that God? Why would we ever trust that God? Now, the argument was so flawed that despite it being a book that was wildly successful, many secular uh, columnists were actually savage in their critiques. They asked what value, in fact, one noted very secular anti-God columnist wrote, what value is there in a God who is omnipotent, a God who lacks power? So that view is not very comforting. And the second reason it's not very comforting, or it's not helpful, and perhaps even more fundamentally, is that it's nothing like the God that we see in the Scriptures. This is nothing like the God that we see revealed in Scripture. The Scriptures make it very clear that God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. It doesn't say God is in the heavens. He does whatever He wants after He's gained permission. He's not handicapped by anything, least of all the so-called autonomy of His creatures. Now, with all that being true, it makes what Job says next very alarming. Scan down to verse 15. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? And then this is what I said is difficult, really difficult, the next three verses. Though I am in the right, my own mouth would, would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe myself. It is all one, therefore I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. So three times Job insists that he's right, that he's innocent, that he's done nothing that he knows of to warrant this particular type of judgment. But he goes a step further then in verse 20 and questions God's judge justice. He says, though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. And then he says, Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. One translation, I forget which one it was, actually goes so far as to say, though I am blameless, he would twist my words. Now, this is very difficult to make sense of. We've not seen this side of Job yet. What he appears to be saying is that even if I could demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt, again, this courtroom analogy, my own innocence, God would proclaim me guilty or perverse anyway. Job seems to be saying that with God, he cannot expect a fair trial, that God is unjust. But I don't think that's where Job's heart is. I don't think that he's calling God unjust. 
That's possible, I guess, given all that he's been through, that he's totally kind of lost his mind, so to speak. But I don't think that's the case. I think there's another explanation. I don't think it's that hard. The word translated he in verse 20b is a Hebrew word that can also be translated it. So it's a very short Hebrew word. In fact, this is actually how the NIV and the King James Version translate it. So I think this is a simple parallelism that should be read this way. Verse 20 again. Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, it, my mouth, would prove me perverse. And I think that's actually a faithful interpretation or translation. In other words, in light of this holy God and my sinful condition, Job thinks, the more that I speak the more my words will expose my sinful heart. My mouth will prove me, he says, perverse. It's kind of like what Isaiah the prophet said when he found himself in the presence of God. He said, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. God is so pure and so holy and so glorious, and so powerful that any attempt we make, despite how persuasive we may find it to be, to justify ourselves before that God will only further prove our guilt. And I believe that's where Job is. He had no idea of any sin, specific sin that he committed that would result in the pain and agony that he suffered, and no one has given him any, any specific sin. In fact, we actually know that he's right when he claims his innocence of any such sin, the secret hidden sin that would bring about God's judgment. But even Job knows that if he were to argue with God or accuse God of injustice, the more that he said, the more that his own mouth would reveal his own perversity of heart. Our God is a consuming fire. He cannot be manipulated or fooled or cajoled or tricked. He cannot be overtaken or defeated. And in the presence of that God, there is no amount of equivocating that will ever suffice. And Job knows this to be true. Old Testament scholar Francis Anderson writes, It is not misgivings about God's fairness that cause Job's anxiety. It is the fearful consequences of such a direct exposure to the divine presence that fills him with terror. What does a person do? when he is confronted with the very presence of God. Repent and worship. What does a person do when she is confronted, when she is face to face with the living God? Dispense with any self-justifying rhetoric. Job knows that he has no chance of pleading his case and winning against God, which leads him to say, in verses 32 and 33. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. What Job longs for, what Job pines for, is for someone to come in between him and God, an arbiter, an arbiter is just a go-between. A person who settles a dispute between two estranged parties. 
What Job wants is for someone to stand in for him as his representative, someone to plead his case. What Job longs for is for someone along anywhere, someone among the heavenly beings to put one hand on Job and one hand on God, so to speak, and reconcile the two parties. But who, Job says, could ever do such a thing? What Job doesn't know, that we know, is that God himself would send someone to be that mediator between himself and sinful man, an advocate who would plead, not just with words, not just with words, but with actions. Words alone wouldn't cut it. A sacrifice had to be made in order for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God. A moral debt had to be paid if man would ever be accepted by God. Someone had to suffer the punishment that rebellious mankind was due. Enter Jesus Christ. Jesus would stand in for us by living for us, obeying all of God's commands, and then dying for us the death we deserve. And then he would be raised from the dead as a receipt, God's stamp of approval, so to speak, that our sins had been fully paid for, that the dispute had been settled for those who trust in him by faith. And now he is exalted at the right hand of God where he prays for us and intercedes for us still. Job didn't know it fully, but we do. It's this, our final point. Because of his perfect righteousness, Jesus' advocacy for us enables us to stand before God with full forgiveness of our sins. We have no more ability to plead our case before God than Job did. We have no greater ability to prove to God that we're righteous than Job did. The more we try to defend our own goodness, the more our mouths betray us. But by believing on Jesus, by trusting in His death and resurrection, we have forgiveness. We are reconciled to God. Jesus Christ settled the dispute, the conflict between us and God once for all by taking on Himself the punishment that we are due. If you're in Christ this morning, God has nothing against you. Your case is settled. And you can know for sure, get this, there's not going to be any more evidence, any new evidence that will ever be brought against you. Even when you sin in the future, God has fully addressed your sinful state just as He did mine by sending for us a Savior. If you're in Christ this morning, you have been forever forgiven by God. You belong to Him. Your advocate, Jesus Christ, has guaranteed your acceptance before God and your eternal home. But if you're not in Christ, if you've not repented of your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus, you are living in defiant opposition to God. You're not just misguided You're not an outside-the-box thinker. You're actually living in active rebellion against God. You are against God. And if I can be so honest with you, God is against you. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can repent and believe. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Even this morning, God has given you an opportunity to repent and believe and to be made new and to be forgiven of every sin you've ever committed and every sin you may commit today and every sin 
you commit in the future. We have four people who are giving evidence of God's power to save. We're going to be baptized this morning. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to hustle up to the uh, baptistry, and uh, we're going to sing a song, and then we're going to celebrate God's, God's power. Let's pray.